Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Last week called their uh, session, um, God Calls a Prophet, in reference to Samuel, the prophet of the Lord. Uh, I entitled my message last week, The Gifting and Calling of God. And the reason I chose that is because I wanted for us to, uh, to recognize the biblical emphasis on not just the, um, uh, the calling of Samuel, but the giving of Samuel to the nation by, by the Lord. Samuel was a gift. If you recall, or if you were here last Sunday, or if you've read recently through 1 Samuel, the first uh, three chapters there, uh, about Hannah praying and asking the Lord for a, a son, and if she received a son, she would give him or lend him, she said, to the Lord for as long as he lived. And his name, Samuel, means to ask and uh, he was a gift of God. And Samuel was a gifted uh, man. He grew up, to, it grew to be a gifted man. He was a very gifted uh, interceding for people, which is a tremendous gift to have. He was a gifted speaker. And, of course, he was a prophet uh, uh, under the mantle of Moses, very much like the prophet Moses, huge figure on the pages of Scripture. And, uh, and, and was also a vibrant type of or short foreshadowing of the Messiah who would come, the one who would be born in Bethlehem, born to save the world. And uh, Samuel had his gifts for sure, but Samuel was a gift. He was a gift to his parents. He was a gift to his people. And we are to be gifts to one another. That's the way the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 4. He doesn't say he gave these gifts. He said he gave these uh, gifted individuals. Um, and I think that we need to take our cue from that and to realize that, that uh, before people are gifted, people are a gift. Children are a gift. Children are a gift from God. And uh, they... Children come with, uh, with giftings, but uh, we need to learn to appreciate people, not just for what they can do, but we need to learn to appreciate people as gifts from God. And, uh, and, and that's, it. that's important. And I don't know maybe if we recognize how important that is, because sometimes we approach God the same way. We, we're more interested in what, in what God can do for us than we are in him personally. And when we think of, of Jesus, we think of how, how gifted Jesus was. You know, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, was on him as, as his baptism, public baptism, by the way, where he identified with us. Uh, but, but, but Jesus himself was the gift of God to us. He's the indescribable gift. Not just what he could do, but he himself, God gave himself to us in Jesus. And... Um, God is setting precedent. He's continuing to set precedent throughout the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. And that precedent is that a child is a gift from God. And, of course, this is intended to fuel our expectation of the hope of the coming 
Messiah, the Christ child, will be in the New Testament by winter, and it'll be exciting when we start talking about that birth story, because we've seen lots of birth stories, right? Samuel here, or last week, uh, Samson, the birth story of Samson, Jacob and Esau, uh, and, and on it goes, and they're all significant birth stories, but they all point forward to the birth story. God's greatest gift to us is a person of Jesus. Not just because of what he could do, because he is the Almighty, but because of who he is. God giving himself. Think about that. God giving himself to us. The other reason um, I, I want to, to strike that emphasis, uh, you know, not just the calling of Samuel, but the gifting of Samuel, Samuel as a gift from God, is that it helps us to acknowledge that it is ultimately God who's coming to our rescue. And though he chooses to use people, human beings like you and like me and like Samuel, it's God who is our Savior and it's God who rescues us. And uh, that point is front and center in the passage we're looking at today as well. Now, I do want to say that in, in, in emphasizing the, um, the uh, gifting uh, uh, to his family and to the nation of Samuel, that's not to diminish the call of God on Samuel's life or the call of God on your life or my life. Um, Eleven times in 1 Samuel 3, chapters 4 through 10, the, the Hebrew verb meaning to call is used. So it's obviously very significant. Samuel as a gift from God, but then God's calling upon Samuel to act in accordance with God's purpose in sending him. And there's an old saying, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And I don't disagree with that. I think that that's true enough. But I would want to add to that that first he gives leaders. He gives leaders uh, to the people. And then he calls those leaders and equips them and he uses them for redemptive purposes for his glory. That is kind of one, uh, a big picture look at the birth of Samson, or uh, sorry, of, of Samuel. And uh, and it's kind of sets us up for where we're at today, I, I hope, I, I trust. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The, the last... Uh, the first verse of Samuel, first Samuel chapter 4, rightfully belongs in chapter 3. It's one of those unfortunate paragraph dividers that should have gone the other way. Uh, I'm going to read the last few verses from chapter 3, and we're not going to project this, but uh, I hope you have your Bibles with you anyway. The last few verses of Samuel, first uh, Samuel 3, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Uh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then it says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Then in the second part of verse 1 and following, it says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apek. And the Philistines drew in, up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. Notice that, enthroned. Okay. Enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the, the Covenant of God. They asked a really good question. They asked, I think, the right question. They asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? Because in, in asking that, they were recognizing that God is the one that's ultimately in control of these matters. Unfortunately, the answer they come up with was not as good as the question. Because the answer they come up with could be kind of paraphrased like this. We're in trouble. We need help. What we really need is to get some religion. And it didn't go well for them. Every time I read this, this passage that we're into here, I, I think of the movie Kingdom of Heaven with, uh, what's his name, that their hunky guy? Orlando Bloom? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, they, where the crusaders, you know, march out into battle with that great, big, humongous wooden cross in front of them, saying, God wills it, God wills it, and thinking that somehow because they were marching under the emblem of the cross, that somehow that would be their power, that that would uh, become the power to defeat their enemies. And, of course, uh, it didn't go well for uh, the crusaders in the movie, and it didn't go well for Israel here either. It reminds me of that passage in the New Testament where Paul talks about having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. I think that's in one of the pastoral letters, I believe. Um, it was um, kind of like, you know, if God exists, then let's, let's use him. Because if you read through the first three chapters, you understand these people, they weren't right with, with God. They weren't right with the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas are front and center here again. Here, here they are, and you remember perhaps in chapter 2, verse 22, it says that all Israel was talking about what was going on at the tabernacle. The, the things that Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, were doing, sleeping with women, and these are married men too, sleeping with women at the gate of the tabernacle, uh, uh, defrauding people, using the offerings of the people to, to defraud the people for their own personal gain. It says they didn't know God. It said they were worthless men. They, were, they were, had all of the resemblances and all the imagery of being great, wonderful leaders of, in the, in the, of the people of Yahweh, but it was just a sham to them. It was just so they could take advantage of all of that and use it to use people. And that's what they did. They used people. So if you're going to use people, why not use God too? Where's that ark thing? And everybody knew that. It was talked about everywhere. So now, here you are. You're there, and there's Hophni and Phinehas and the ark of God. How do you think this is going to go? Well, they seem to be pretty excited about it. Uh, they think it's a, good, it's a good thing. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant, verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. 
so that the earth resounded. In other words, it shook the ground. This is it. All right. This is it. So they really didn't know, did they? Even though they should have known, like Eli, they should have known, but they didn't get it. And that happens all the time, actually, truth be known, right? To say the right words, have the, the right imagery, go through the right motions, follow some ritual, have the liturgy or the, or the terminology or whatever. But it's the content that's missing. The substance is missing. They don't have a relationship with God. They're not right with God. And, but they don't know that. Um, or at least they're not allowing themselves to recognize it. So they shout, and the Philistines, verse 6, heard the noise of the shouting. They said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, O oh, be men, O oh Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Um, so Israel was enslaved by the Philistines. They weren't just going out to fight for something to do. They were trying to, uh, to gain uh, victory over their oppressors. And here the, they are, they're shouting, we got them now. And, and, the, and the Philistines, they're like, well, we're, we're, you know, we're pretty much without hope here, but you know, I'm probably going to lose this battle really bad, but, but be brave, man, and, and wouldn't you know it. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. 30,000 men. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died both in the same day, just like it had been uh, foretold. Let's read on the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter 4, the verse 12 and following. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat of the road watching, for his heart was trembling for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound, out of, uh, sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? You know, it's, it's really sad here. He's 98 years old. He's sitting beside the road waiting to hear the summation of his life. 98 years, and he's, he's about to hear how God is going to basically sum up his entire life in loss. It's just unbelievably devastating uh, to think what, what this all means. Um, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, um, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He brought the news, answered him, and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat, 
among the people. Your two sons, also Othni and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he judged Israel 40 years. Now, we've already seen, uh, as we study the first three chapters, we've, and we've considered some about e Eli's life and, and, uh, and the lessons that God wants us to learn from Eli's life and his relationship with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Lord, uh, kind of, sort of. They had those positions. Um, but but, but um, look at how the, it sums up in the last part of the chapter, chapter 4. There's this little vignette there uh, that really, really kind of um, captures the, the essence of what this all means. It says, now his daughter-in-law, that's Levi, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news, that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of the Lord had been captured, and because of her father-in-law, and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod. The glory is gone. Does it get any worse than this? The ark of the covenant of the Lord, the very set the throne of God amongst his people, the very place where he had promised to meet with them and dwell and live amongst them. His throne, as it were. The most holy uh, object in the whole worship system of Old Testament Israel intended to, to convey that, that central idea of the, the atonement for our sin. Captured. Gone. Ichabod, the glory has left. Do you, Ichabod, have you heard that name before? Yeah, Ichabod Crane comes to mind. Washington Irving, 1820, wrote the story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And Ichabod Crane was stamped into my mind ever since I saw that when I was a kid, in the cartoon version, of course. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a common name. I wonder why. Um, it's, yeah. This is worse. Like, this is worse at times. The, the news of the battle being lost, the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, two priests of the Lord, being slain, along with the, new, the news of the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, all converges together to create this, this picture of utter disaster. These are not the good old days. These are the very worst of days. But the good news is that even in the worst of days, God is very much at work. And when you read through these chapters, 
that's the thing that rises up above everything else when you look at the big picture. God is at work. So now let's just keep going here because the ark is no longer. Imagine, the ark of the covenant of the Lord is in Philistia. <laughs> it's not even in Israel. It's in Philistia in the hands of the enemies of God's people. Like, it's, this is a complete disaster. Well, let me, uh, we're not going to try to read through two chapters here, but let me just try to walk you through chapter 5 and chapter 6, okay? So they, the Philistines take the Ark of the Lord, and they take it to Ashdod. Uh, Mitchell, that map here, I've got a, a map of the, um, the five major cities, fortress cities of Philistia. Ashdod, you can see in the top left. Ascalon, Gaza, or Gaza. Ekron and Gath. Uh, those are the, the uh, uh, five most prominent cities, and uh, you recognize some of those names, maybe. Uh, you might want to pay particular attention to the city of Gath. Why is the city of Gath important? More than one reason, but... Goliath! Hometown! Hometown boy! Going to do well. Big guy. Defied the Lord. Oh, that's two weeks' time. Anyways, I think. Yeah, two weeks' time. We'll be there. Um, but uh, uh, so they took it to Ashdod. Thank you uh, very much, Mitchell. They took the ark to Ashdod, and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Right? That's what you do, right? Like our god defeated their god, so we'll put their god in our God's temple, and we'll all celebrate the dominance of our God over their God. And they get up the next morning, and they walk in the temple, and there is Dagon on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how did he get there? Maybe people snuck in at night and laid him down there. I don't think so. I think the whole point of the story is... Something other than that. So they say, it's kind of funny, it says they put him back in his place. Because he, he needed help with that. Anyways, the next day they get up and not only is Dagon uh, on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but his head and hands are gone. And so they had to take and put his head back on and put his hands back on him. He was obviously one of those gods that would lose his head if it wasn't attached. And so they put him back together again and stood him back up there again. Now, you can imagine when the news gets to Israel the next day, this is funny stuff, right? This is intended to be. That's the whole idea, right? Um, then things go really bad. Tumors. Uh, some... Some, the old version has emeralds, which sounds a lot like hemorrhoids to me. And uh, so if you can kind of combine tumors and hemorrhoids, you get the idea. This is bad, okay? <laughs> this is really, really bad. It's the kind of bad that doesn't make you, you don't want to do anything else. Suddenly all that wonderful meal that you were so excited about, couldn't care less. Even sex loses its appeal. It's bad, 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 bad. People were dying from these things. And so they said, we, 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 uh, we need to, to move this thing along here. So they take the ark. They, I think they, they, uh, they, they, the five, what they call the lords of the Philistines, you know, 
uh, that the, 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 the kind of the principal decision makers, and they decide they're going to take the ark uh, from uh, um, Ashdod to, to, to Gath. So they do that. They take it to Gath, and they, but then the same thing happens, and these tumors come in, and it's bad, really, really bad. So do you know what they did then? They said, let's take this thing to Gath. So they take the ark and they head for Gath. And, and the people in Gath, you know what they did? They were at the gate waiting. They said, this is not happening. You are not bringing that thing here. And so the five lords of the Philistines get together and had another conference. And they, this is what they decided they, they would do. They said, we got to send this thing back where it belongs. Because our lives were a whole lot better when this ark was where it belongs. And so all of chapter 6 tells the story of how they sent the ark back. And this is how they did it. It's kind of cool. They, first of all, they, they, they uh, sought some counsel from some of their, their priests and holy people and stuff like that. And they, and they ended up making five golden tumors. I don't know, how, I don't know what they used for a model, but... <laughs> They made five golden tumors, and they made five golden mice. And the, I know it sounds weird, but the mice represented the five lords of the Philistines. And why they chose the mice, I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's an answer for that. I didn't find out. But they, and then they, they made this cart, this brand new cart, and they put the, the ark on the cart, and they put the golden tumors and the golden mice on the cart, and then they went and found two cows. And these were cows that had just given birth to two calves. And they yoked these cows, which had never had a yoke on them before, it says in the passage. If you read it, you'll see that. They had never been yoked before. And they took them and they yoked them to this cart. And they took those two brand new baby cows and they locked them in the barn. And then they stood back and let them go. And you know what those two cows did? They took a straight beeline for Israel. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's really quite simple. If you were standing there that day, you would say, you would not say, oh, what a coincidence. The cows are heading for Israel. You would know, you would absolutely know, as a Philistine or as a Jew, you would know that this was God. Um... Locked the cows, calves in the in the barn. Uh, the, the passage says that they went lowing, and I remember, probably close to forty years ago, I heard Bruce Lumsden, Shannonman missionary, preach a message right over there in the old church building, on this passage. I remember it. He called it lowing but going. Lowing, but going. You can see these two cows. You know, they're they're babies in the barn but they were conscripted by God, a God way more powerful than Dagon or any of the gods of the Philistines. Now, you can look at this account as judgment upon the Philistines because it obviously is that. But at the same time, it's also God showing mercy. Now, think about this because this is really quite something. God shows God passes judgment and um, 
and shows mercy at the same time. Um, for one thing, it's a merciful, merciful act of God to show the Philistines who he is, to show his lordship to, to them, to show his sovereignty to them. God is revealing himself to the Philistines even as he judges them. That's, that's interesting. And there's a lot of things that can be said about that um, and how we even understand judgment. Consider this. God acts in judgment at the same time as he provides salvation. Do you know that the Bible teaches us that God judged our sin at Calvary? God judged our sin on the cross. In representing you and I there, it was as if you and I were there and God judged our sin in the body of his own son. That's, those, that, the Bible teaches that. You can check it out. Colossians 2.14 says it, and Romans chapter 3 talks about God. Paul talks there about how uh, God remains just and the justifier of them who believe in Jesus Christ. You see, God is, is both justice and mercy, and his justice is perfect. God doesn't stop being the judge of all the, the earth, the only one who always does what is right. He doesn't stop being that person to show us mercy. God is perfect in his holiness, perfect in his justice, and perfect in his mercy. We have a trouble seeing these things uh, as um, compatible because we fail to understand, I think, sometimes how these things work. It is the justice, it is injustice that God ju judges people uh, who are hurting others. If you hurt somebody and God doesn't extract some form of justice for that, what does that say about the person you hurt? What about them? Do they matter? But, so, but if God judges me for it, then it's like, well, God's not merciful. You know, he, he's judging me. Well, he's, he is he's holding up, upholding justice on behalf of the oppressed. And God's justice and mercy go together. There, there's consistency in, in God as the judge of all the earth and also the one who his mercies are new every, every morning. See, Eli should have learned this because he would have parented differently. Because Eli thought that letting his sons off was somehow the loving or kind thing to do. Not realizing that he was called to judge them. Not in the kind of way we think of judgment, but in the way that Paul talks about judgment when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged by God. But when we are judged by God, or you can put the word correction or discipline in there if you want, it is so that we would not be condemned with the world. These are important concepts that are evidenced here, and it's um, it's important for us to realize there's no incongruence between God's act of judgment and his acts of salvation. Um, so, chapter 7, and that's where we'll finish up. 
chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Verses 1 and 2 says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have a charge of the ark of the Lord. Uh, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There's something happening in the hearts of the people. Then this too is a work of God. This is God at work. When, when, when I said earlier that in the worst of times, even, God is at work, we could ask what God is doing. Well, here's one of the things he was doing. He was working in people's hearts, turning people's hearts back towards him. God does that. That's something God does. If, if, you, if you turn your heart towards the Lord, you won't be able to look back on that day and say, I, you know, I did that. You'll have to confess that God did that work in your heart. You'll have to point to him. In fact, if you ever do anything good and decent in this life, you're going to have to give all the glory to the Lord. We don't want to miss this point here. And here it is. The ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant of the Lord is back in Israel. And not one Israeli lifted one finger to make it happen. God did it. And, and they thought they had captured the ark, right? It was more like the ark had captured them. They didn't know what they were getting into. And we don't know what we're getting into most of the time either. You know, we talked last week, or thought last week, and talked a little bit about, about good parenting and bad parenting. You know, and Eli was just a horrible dad. As it turns out, David wasn't really a great father either. And Samuel, well, you know, his kids never followed the Lord either. If you have kids that follow the Lord, you better give all the praise to God. Because there's two things that God loves to do. He loves to save people and he loves to make babies. That's what he seems to like the most, those two things. And I say, bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. I see, let's see more people. I'd love to baptize 25 people this summer. That would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, people that actually have turned and put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives, and now know that they belong to him, and that they are uh, sealed by his Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. They're going to glory. They're going to heaven. That would be great. The baby thing, and I say bring that on too. More babies, the better. Every one of them is a gift from God. 1 Samuel 7.3, Samuel said to all those of Israel, if you are turning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Remember, asterisk, if you've been following along in our study, was the feminine counterpart to the storm god Baal. And here it says, put away the foreign gods and the asterisk among you. Did she sleep around? It appears she did. 
You know what's going on here in this passage? This is what we, we always called, uh, uh, the word we use for it is revival. We are reading about a tremendous time of revival in the, people, in the people's hearts. And, 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 and God's doing it. So while all this other stuff is going on, you know, it's Hophni and Phineas and, and uh, the, all of the disastrous kind of stuff that's happening, God is secretly at work in the background. Somewhat hidden. Somewhat hidden. But very, very much at work. Preparing people's hearts. Preparing Samuel. Giving Samuel to the people. God's working it all together. Every single detail. Every single detail. God Almighty is at work. And it's a revival. They're having a revival. God is working in people's hearts. And what were some of the worst of times are becoming some of the best of times. Because with revival comes great victory, right? And that's what we see here, both, both preceding and following. It's a time uh, of great victory. It says in verse 4, The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Because Samuel was a great intercessor. And uh, uh, he's, it was his strong suit as a leader. He was an intercessor, which made him kind of priestly. And there's a whole, there's a whole thing there we won't get into. But, um, but, it, but it, the life of Samuel begs a question in light of, um, and other people, leaders, in light of what we've just been talking about, how God does it. It's, it's his work. God saves. God stirs hearts. God rescues it's his work. It's what he does. We need to look to him. Well, then if that's true, then, then what role do leaders have? What role do peoples have? I'm using the word leader here. I, I want you to understand, I believe every Christian is a leader. I believe that. I know it puts me at odds with a lot of people because they say, you, you say everybody's a leader, that makes nobody a leader. I don't really care. All I know is, is that God wants to work in every Christian's life to influence other people for him. And that's leadership. That's what it is. And it begs the question, if God uh, is the one, then what's he need us for? What's he need a Samuel for? What's he need you for or me? And I, I think it's an important question to ask because it, it, it begs the question. And... The, the answer seems to be kind of twofold. But one, God wants to include us. He chooses to work through us. He chooses to work through us. I don't know, I don't know all the reasons why he does that, but, but it's marvelous when you think of it. Really, it's quite, it's quite something. And uh, Paul says, uh, we are... God's fellow workers. Imagine that. Imagine that. 
the Almighty One who is in control of all the details of life. And he says that we are have the opportunity to be his fellow workers. Opportunity and responsibility to be his fellow workers. But there's something else here too, and I think it's how this points us to Jesus. A man, a human being, the Son of God, God incarnate, God in flesh, God's salvation is the gift of a child who would be none other than the Lord of glory himself, the Son of God, giving himself out, pouring himself out for you and for me so that we can be saved. Uh, 1 Samuel 7, 6, says, they gathered at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and they said, we have sinned against the Lord. So Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Um, obviously, judging there means way more than just the settling of disputes or the keeping of the peace or even ensuring that broken laws go, uh, don't go unpunished. Um, there's so much more to this, this biblical theme of what it means to, to, to judge. We, we have this, this, we think of judging like this when really the biblical idea of judging is like this. And there's so much more to it. Um, but we, we, we won't take time to talk more about that. Um, I just want you to note that these times of revival were precipitated by a seeking after the Lord, verses 1 and 2, and accompanied by great victory, both preceding and following. Look at verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that, we may sa that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, that's a, that's a great statement, isn't it? And the Lord answered him. Samuel was an intercessor. He follows in the footsteps of Moses, and he's a foreshadowing of the greatest intercessor of all. The Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. Where was it? Verse 10. Samuel was offered up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, and the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth -car. And then in verse 12, it says, Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called it Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So he named the, that spot and that stone Ebenezer, which is to signify up till now, till now the Lord has helped us. And that doesn't mean he's not saying, thank the Lord, he's got us this far, we're not sure about tomorrow. It's just a way of pointing back and saying, look, look back. Every step of the way, all along the way, it was God. God helped us. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who saves. He's the one who forgives our sins. He's the one who shows mercy. If we're going to have live well and, and, and have good days, we need to be seeking the Lord. That's what a revival is, by the way. When, people, when, the, when God starts stirring people's heart to seek him 
and to live our lives in a way that press towards the Lord instead of running off and doing our own thing. And those make for, for good days, days when people aren't just doing what's right in their own eyes, but people are actually seeking the Lord together, seeking the Lord together. Good, good days. So he called it Ebenezer. And uh, uh, we, again, don't want to miss this important point here that Samuel is making, and that is that it's the Lord. It's him. Samuel took stone and set it up, verse 12, at Mizpah, and Shannon called his name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Verse uh, 13 and 14, so the Philistines were subdued, did not enter again into the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And then it says in verse 15 through 17, to finish off the chapter, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. You know, we don't like to be judged. This is justice. We're talking about justice here. We're talking about uh, living just lives and people uh, not oppressing one another, but helping one another and serving God and, and living the kind of lives that make for good life. When days are good, you see the worst of days becoming the best of days when people seek the Lord. And he built an altar there, it says at the end. These are better, these are better days. People seeking the Lord. And, and part, of that, part of that may be leadership. It may involve uh, you seeking the Lord may involve a, a, a leader or it may involve you being a leader. But beyond that is pointing to Jesus who is our leader. Christ is the leader. He's the one who became, who was a child, who was born, who grew to be the Savior, laying down his life for us so that we could be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. He is the gift. He's the one that all of this points to. He is God's gift to you. He satisfied the righteous justice of God on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven for our sins and have the forgiveness of God and not only the forgiveness of God, but have the presence of God who was the, the promised his presence to abide on the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. Right, David? You're still there? Have you received that gift? Say every child is a gift to be welcomed and received. But Jesus is a gift. He's the gift. And you know the people around you that God gives you as a gift, they can help you, they can encourage you, they can lead you, or they can get you in trouble. But Jesus, and only Jesus, can reconcile you to God and save your soul all eternity. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's not just in the New Testament. The whole Old Testament is meant to showcase the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you accept the gift of Jesus, you have the glory of God in you. You see, that's the, that's the glory part. You know, it talks about the uh, uh, Ichabod, the glory has departed. The glory of God is the presence of God. 
It's the great presence of God. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I want to pray with you. But I want you to think about this. I want you to ask yourself the question, have I received the gift of Jesus Christ? Have I responded the way God intends for me to respond? And we talk about publicly identifying with Christ. What are we saying? What's, when somebody is, you know, is, is baptized, what are, what are they, they're making a statement. What is that statement? I have received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, and I'm going to follow him. It's a tremendous thing, isn't it? And, and, and it can be your opportunity today. If you haven't made that decision, I invite you, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I invite you to welcome him into your heart and life. Put your faith and trust in him. Pray and ask him to forgive you and take you and make you his own and commit your life to following him no matter what, anywhere, any cost. And you have the glory of God in your life. And you have good days ahead. You have the hope of good days. We all need the hope of good days. All right? So pray with me. Lord in heaven, thank you for this tremendous group of people here today. Thank you for all we've been able to enjoy together. The, the tremendous opportunity to sing your praises and to call upon your name and, and to share in some of the great things that you're doing. But Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this uh, sin-soaked world and being willing to rescue us and to pay the price, to do what it took to satisfy the righteous justice of God so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so that we could be your people and have you in our lives. Thank you for the glory of your presence in the life of everyone that you draw to yourself. And Lord, I pray you be drawing men and women to yourself in these days, in these days, in this place. For your glory, we pray, Jesus. Amen.